This time we study God's Word together, but before we do that, I just want to uh, re-invite you men. Uh, last week I invited you all and encouraged you to become uh, to be part of our men's breakfast next Saturday morning. Um, you can sign up online if you want to, or you can just show up. But next Saturday morning, I think things start at 8 o'clock, uh, between the 8 and 9 o'clock hour, we're eating breakfast, and then Paul Felix is going to be here. Um, he's a, a good friend, a friend of the ministry here. He's been here before. He's a New Testament professor at Master Seminary. And uh, on the lighter side, last time I said uh, that you could get on um, YouTube and type in Allison Felix, his daughter, and you would be introduced to the fastest woman on the planet. Because as of today, Allison Felix is the fastest woman on the planet. That was the lighter side, and it's true, and maybe you looked at it. Actually, some of you said you did, and you were impressed. Well, he's not bringing his daughter, sorry, um, and that's the lighter side of things. On the more serious side of things, he is coming to talk about sexual purity, and so he's uh, going to come and talk about that. The title is Purity Matters. How could anything be more relevant than that? I would encourage you men to come. This is not only something that men struggle with, but men do in particular. And so I don't want to claim that Saturday morning is going to solve all of your problems or anything like that. But if nothing else, it might be a great start looking at God's Word and what it has to say about these things. Or it might even help you uh, sort of have that first step toward not destroying your life any more than you may have already destroyed it to be quite frank. So I can't encourage you enough. I just looked uh, at a couple of different studies, and one study said that 42% of everyone who looks at the Internet looks at pornography on the Internet. So 42%, that's a high number. Uh, I think I, and just to, to give you a little bit better understanding, what else did I see? Every second, $3,000 is spent on pornography. Every 39 minutes in the United States, a new pornographic video is made. So, if you want relevant for men's breakfast, this would be relevant. We'd love to have you come. God does talk about uh, sex, and he says it's good. No, in fact, he says it's very good, Genesis. But it's for a husband and a wife, and so purity is important to us, and it's also important to God. And we'd love to have you come and be a part of the men's breakfast with Paul Felix next Saturday morning. Now I want to pray again, and then we're going to study God's Word. Father, thank you for uh, the fact that Paul is going to come, and, and I'm so thankful for him and his humble spirit and humble attitude. And we would ask that you would work things out in his family even this week. So coming here would not be a burden. It would be a joy. And then for all of us men who are going to be there, that we might be challenged, that we might be encouraged, that it would be good for us, ultimately so that Christ can be glorified and honored. We're looking forward to that, and we're looking forward to you using your Holy Spirit and your Word, the Bible, to impact our lives in that particular area, and we would ask that it would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today what we're going to do during this time where we study God's Word together is we're going to participate in what I'm going to call a time of emotional tension. This is going to be an exercise in emotional tension. And the reason I say that is because we're going to be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And when you talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you feel emotional tension. Because after all, we love Jesus Christ as Christians. We don't like it when anyone speaks ill of Him. We don't like it when, when bad things are done to Him. And we certainly don't like it when He is beaten mocked and executed 
I guarantee you, because we're going to look at those things this morning, I guarantee you that if you are a Christian, you will feel bad today. You will feel emotionally moved. You will feel upset. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, as we're talking about this being a time of emotional tension, on the other hand, if you're a Christian, maybe even if you're not a Christian, maybe God is working in your heart, who knows? You're going to be encouraged because at the very heart of Christianity is the crucifixion of Jesus. It's why the Bible says things like, our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. It's why people like the Apostle Paul said things like this, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross. We boast in the cross. And not only do we see the cross as a good thing for us, that we even boast about the cross and the great hope that is in it for us. Not only that, we find in the Bible that, that the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, provides the foundation or the setting for the supreme, unmatched exaltation of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, it says of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That's what I mean by emotional tension. And, and we'll, we'll go from one to the other. You might leave today feeling a bit schizophrenic uh, spiritually because uh, you feel this tug on one side and you feel this tug on the other side. And it's all true and it's all right to feel both. In fact, if you're not feeling both, there's probably something out of whack. Where we're going to be looking this morning is Matthew chapter 7. It's the first gospel account. So if you have a Bible, you can look there. If you're new to the Bible, I'll say what I say almost every Sunday, and that is you can find the page number in the bulletin, or you can look at the table of contents in that Bible, and you can find it's Matthew, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, and we're going to see Jesus crucified. Now, as we do that, and you really don't need to follow an outline or anything like that, but if you would like to follow an outline, we will look at the crucifixion of Jesus from the angle of multiple offenders. There are all different sorts of individuals who play a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. And we'll look at five different offenders in Matthew, and then we'll add a sixth. And some of these we'll spend more time on than others. But we'll look at one outside of this. I have to say, I mentioned this in the first service, that, that I'm not feeling the greatest today. I have some who knows what and, and feeling a little bit drowsy, feeling a little bit, I don't know, melancholy. And I think it's in the providence of God that that's the case. Now, I hope and pray that when we get to the resurrection, I don't feel this way. <laughs> because it wouldn't be good. Here, here we go. <coughs> but according to the providence of God... I'm kind of thankful that I feel this way, because if there's ever a time to feel this way, it's in this kind of passage. This is a heavy-duty message today. Next times will be heavy-duty as well, because we're moving toward what is good and, and what we'll praise God for as a positive message. Well, if you begin following along with me, we'll see the first to humiliate Jesus is the Roman military. 
And so let's go ahead and take a look at verse 32. If you look with me, it says there, And they, no doubt the soldiers, borrowing from what came before, were coming out. That means they're coming out of the city because they're going to execute, and they're not going to execute inside the city. They found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who pressed into, who, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And we know that's Jesus' cross. Now when you read that, And you just heard me say the Roman soldiers or the Roman military humiliates Jesus. You might be thinking, I hope you're thinking, how in the world does that verse prove that? It doesn't say anything really about the Roman military abusing Jesus or humiliating Jesus. But it gives us a huge clue in this way. Jesus has been so beaten and brutalized by them, as we saw last time, that he can't even do what is expected of him physically, and that is to carry his cross to the point where they will actually lift him up on it and actually crucify him. We saw this last time. But verse 32 gives us that hint and it tells us we must look above verse 32. Go all the way up to verse 27 where it said in Matthew 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. See, they're mocking him. He says he's the king. They're going to make him a a mocked king. And after twisting together a crown of thorns... They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, some sort of kingly staff and mock. And they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe, they took the scarlet robe off and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And it was so ruthless. It was so severe. If we look at all the gospel accounts, there's more involved. They, they, they flog him with a whip and, and they would have used the sort of whip where you would actually take shards of glass or stone or bone and put that at the end of the whip for maximum pain, for maximum infliction. Extra biblical sources tell us it would go to the bone. That's sometimes what killed people. And so that has been done to Jesus to such a brutal degree that the Romans have to take a a, a citizen, someone standing by or someone visiting the community, and, and they press him into service. They say, you, help him. That should trouble us. Jesus has been that humiliated. John's account says he started carrying his cross, but he can't make it. That's how devastated he is physically as a result of what they have done to him. And yet, and we'll do this now and then, even though that's horrific and if you're a Christian or even if you're just a civil person, you think that is bad, that is wrong. And then if you're a Christian, you say, this is horrific. He's the very one that that I just got done worshiping worshiping through music. And I live for Him and, and I'm even doing what I'm doing right now as a result of my love for Him. But over and over again, we see some good things. This man that they force into service, Simon the Cyrene is his name. 
and I have to say may because we don't know for certain, may very well have become a Christian in time as a result of this. Please don't make him better than he is. They make him help Jesus. It wasn't out of the kindness of his heart, I don't think, for a second. But it may very well be, and Bible interpreters over the years generally have thought this to be the case, that somehow connected to this, Simon of Cyrene became a Christian, or, or at least his family were, was introduced to the gospel. And I say that we're not going to take the time to go there. But in Mark 15, 21, the parallel account says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then if we were to take the time to go to Romans 16, verse 13, ah, individuals, a Christian. Well, maybe it wasn't the same Rufus, but it may very well have been. All of that to just say God in His providence is working through this horrific event and He is going to accomplish good through it and this might be one example of good. Well, the offenses don't stop with the Roman military. Look at verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, from the Latin calva we get our word calvary. Calvary means skull. Just as an aside because this is so heavy. Calvary Bible Church, Calvary Baptist Church, Calvary whatever, Skull Baptist Church, Skull Bible Church. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Well, none of this is pretty cool, but a little bit of humor to lighten things up. But if we're ever going to change our name, I'm going for Skull Church. Which means place of a skull. Verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So he's on his way there. They give him this wine to drink. He tastes it, and he says, no, I won't drink that. Now, again, I don't want to get too hung up in all the details, but I, I want you to be thinking and, and, and processing some of these things and why that happened. Many Bible interpreters say that what's happening here is there was a Jewish tradition where the Jewish women who were compassionate would be close by and as men were being marched to their execution, dying on a cross, they would take wine and they would mix it with a sedative and it would allow them to, to not feel as much pain. And it would, allow, it would take the edge off, if you will. And it was an act of compassion or grace. And that may very well be the case. I don't so much lean there. I don't so much lean there because there are no women mentioned in any of the accounts. There's no clue that that's what's happened. What's happening is, every, every indication is, the soldiers are doing this for Jesus, and the soldiers aren't exactly known for compassion. The soldiers aren't looking to have Jesus feel better and not feel the pain as much. I opt for the view that this is the soldiers doing this for Jesus. And they have added to the wine, all right, to the point where it is utterly disgusting and undrinkable. They are mocking Jesus. They are ridiculing Jesus by offering Him wine, and it's wine not mixed with something that's a sedative. It's mixed with something that makes it intolerable, undrinkable. Weighing in on this on the scholarly side of things, Don Carson says, Neither Mark nor Matthew mentions women, and both imply that the soldiers administered the drink. That's what I just said. wonder where I learned it. Moreover, 
That Matthew says Jesus tasted it before refusing it argues against the view that it was a customary narcotic to dull the pain. If it were a customary narcotic to dull the pain, why did Jesus take it to begin with if it was so customary and known? For if customary, he would know what it contained. Why should he have tasted it when it would have, in the end, he would have refused it? It is much better to assume that the gesture in both Matthew and Mark was not one of compassion, but of torment. Someone else has weighed in and said the offering of this wine involves cruelty and mockery consistent with the context of Psalm 69. Now everyone agrees Psalm 69 is the messianic psalm that's talking about what is happening here. And in Psalm 69, it's not a positive thing. Listen to Psalm 69 verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. I look for sympathy like some wine to drink. But there was none and and for comforters like compassionate Jewish women who would offer me a drink or a sedative. But I found none. I was inserting that obviously. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. There's nothing positive about it in Psalm 69. It's all an act of mockery. Just like David who came before Jesus when he was looking for comfort and he was looking for encouragement, he got the exact opposite, which fits our context. Jesus was looking for some compassion. We would want him to have compassion and they gave him a dirty trick, quite frankly, to make him more miserable. But the humiliation doesn't stop there. Let's keep going. Verse 35, if you read with me in Matthew 27, And when they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves by casting lots. And I I just want to say, before I say that is horrific, I want to say that it's, it's peculiar or odd before it's horrific. Don't you think? Don't you think it's, it's odd that he says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garment? Just like passing over crucifixion. He doesn't give us any details. He doesn't give us any, any, uh, any of the, the stuff that would come from the Old Testament, messianic kinds of passages. What's interesting about this is it's caused some people to then therefore conclude that since this time, Christians have put too much emphasis on Christ's passion on Christ's death. Too much emphasis upon crucifixion because after all, you read the gospel accounts and it just says they crucified Him and there's not a big emphasis on the crucifixion. What I would suggest is the reason all of the gospel commentators or writers can just say they crucified Him is not so that Christians after this time would not put an emphasis upon the crucifixion. It's because the original readers of Matthew's account and Mark's account and John's account and Luke's account, they knew. In fact, they knew all too well. It was emblazoned on their minds like we can't even imagine what crucifixion was. They they needed no footnotes. They needed no explanation. Sure, they could turn to certain passages, certain texts, but they really didn't need even that because they knew absolutely what crucifixion was because it was happening all around them. But we don't have that. So perhaps this helps. They knew because thousands had been crucified. 
Listen to this. King Darius crucified 3,000 Babylonians. Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 from the city of Tyre. Alexander Janius crucified 800 Pharisees while they watched soldiers slaughter their wives and children at their feet. This sealed the horror of the crucifixion in the Jewish mind. Romans came to power in Israel in 63 B.C. and used crucifixion extensively. Some writers say authorities crucified as many as 30,000 people at that time. Titus Vespian crucified so many Jews in AD 70, I realize that's later, that's close to the time, that the soldiers had no room for the crosses and not enough crosses for the bodies. When Matthew's original readers are reading, they crucified Jesus, they knew all too well in their minds what it looked like. They knew. They knew because of the haunting images. Listen to this account. The crucified slave beside the road, the Roman road, screamed until his voice died and then hung a filthy, naked, festering clot of flies, sometimes for days, a living man whose hands and feet were masses of gangrenous meat. And the Jews certainly knew the shame in light of the fact of what Deuteronomy says in Deuteronomy 21, that anyone who hangs on a tree, on a cross, is accursed, is condemned by God. The Romans knew it as well. They knew how shameful it was. Not just the Jews. Cicero is the one who said, let every mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. So shameful. The Jews knew it. The Romans knew it. Everybody knew it. We don't know it. And so I've given you these extensive quotations so that we might feel it just a bit more or maybe a lot more. When Matthew says they crucified Jesus, it's meant to stir up inside of you all kinds of bad feelings, all kinds of emotions. This is the most detestable, gruesome, severe act of punishment that they knew. It couldn't get much more sadistic than this. If you're interested in reading some of these kinds of things and you want to know more, probably the most helpful, simple, and yet detailed, well-footnoted article that I've read in some time, is an article called The Folly of the Cross. You can just type in, Google The Folly of the Cross and TMS for the Master Seminary. And it's a very, very well-written article by a former classmate of mine. And uh, you'll, you'll find it not refreshing, but you'll find it quite helpful and it's easy to access, credible. I don't know, how you feeling? You know? I mean, there's something definitely in me that just wants to say we should just keep talking about it. There's something in me that wants to say let's not keep talking about it. But when they crucify Jesus, it's no small thing. And Matthew didn't mean for it to be. Well, getting back to the humiliation, let's go ahead and keep moving. In verse 35, so they crucified him. But then notice what he goes on to say in verse 35. They divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And that should just scream, Pathetic! That is to say, they hang him on the cross 
After he can't carry it himself, he's exhausted. He's been beaten almost to death. They hang him there. And while he's still alive, they're dividing up his stuff. They can't even wait for him to breathe his last breath. They're going to do it in front of him. It's pathetic. It's horrific. I told you I'd give you some positives along the way. If you were to take the time to read Psalm 22, verse 18, you'd see, as pathetic and horrific as it is, it is unfolding according to the plan and purpose of a sovereign God who is doing all of this according to His plan, ultimately for our benefit, for redemption. And we say, okay, that's good. It's bad. It's good. It's bad. It's good. But it's according to plan. Things don't get less pathetic in verse 36. If you look there, it says, And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Let me start with the negative side of that. He's exhausted. He can't even carry his own cross. There he is before them. They've mocked him by giving him something to drink that he can't even drink. And what do they do? They sit in front of him. They're relaxing. Taking a load off. But the good side of that is, in the providence of God, when I say in the providence of God, that's God working, not through a miracle, but He's working through regular circumstances to accomplish something. That's providence. The providence of God is, the soldiers stayed. The providence of God is, the soldiers stayed, and they were going to stay there till He was dead most certainly. And we say, we're so glad. They didn't leave, so those bogus accusations that say Jesus didn't really die, they brought him down and resuscitated him, and then the whole resurrection thing was a hoax. No, those brutal, thoughtless, unloving, uncompassionate soldiers sat down and stayed, and we hate that, and we love that just gives more credibility to the whole gospel account. The resurrection makes more sense, or it's more credible. Let's move on, and I promise we'll go faster as we go. Number two, a second group to humiliate Jesus, or a second individual to humiliate Jesus in connection to the crucifixion would be the government. Now, I'm a little bit being unfair because the Roman soldiers didn't do anything on their own. They were under Pilate's leadership. But now Pilate proper... Pilate as an individual, the government, also humiliates Jesus. Look at verse 37 with me, if you would. And it says, and above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And you say, that doesn't look like Pilate to me. That looks like the Roman soldiers. You should have put that verse with the first point. Well, in John 19, 19, we learn that Pilate is the one who writes it. This is Pilate's doing. He's going to hang there on the cross, what Jesus is guilty of. What is He guilty of? He's guilty of being Jesus, King of the Jews. We also learn in a different Gospel account that He writes it in multiple languages. Now again, on the negative side, you say Pilate is a total thug, mocking the Jews, mocking Jesus. There's your King! There's your king. Oh, and let's just make sure everyone knows. I'll put it in multiple languages. It's, as we might say, in your face. 
And we say, that is a bad, bad deal. The positive side? It's right. King of the Jews. That's what Jesus claimed. That's what the Bible would affirm about him. Multiple languages, as heinous as his intent might have been. How great! It's going to speak the truth about Jesus so everybody can read it. It was so truthful... You know it was truthful when the Jews, again, different gospel account, went to Pilate and basically pleaded with him and said, please change the sign. Have it say that he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I won't. You see the goodness of the providence of God making sure that it's going to ultimately fulfill a greater purpose in exalting Christ. Pilate's sign is spot on. If we move on to verse 38, there's further humiliation by Pilate. It says, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And you might ask yourself, how is that an act of humiliation by Pilate against Jesus? If you think about it for a second, you'll know. He's going to crucify Jesus with known convicted criminals. So he's saying, Jesus is one of them. He is no better than the filthy dregs of society. You say, what's good about that? What's good is Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Ah, What's good about it is, as bad as it is, God's prophetic word being fulfilled. A piece at a time, a piece at a time, a piece at a time. We'll hear from these men in just a little while. Let's move on to a third group to humiliate Jesus, and that would be what I'll call the fickle populace. The people at large. Verse 39 says, And those passing by, we have to assume the general population, were hurling abuse at Him. Literally, they were blaspheming Him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads in mockery, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. John chapter 2, Jesus said something to that effect. And then later He was uh, challenged by about that. Matthew 26, 61. Save yourself! If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross! They're mocking Him. They're they're belittling Him. They're ridiculing Him. It's raw. It's gloves off. They're all over Him. And what makes that particularly heinous, and I mentioned this last time, but I can't help but mention it again, these are the same individuals. Get this. The same individuals who just days before, not even a week has passed, who were saying as Jesus was coming into the city, what were they saying over and over again? Hosanna! 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 They were seeing Jesus and they were acknowledging Jesus in one way or another as Messiah, as the King. Hosanna! God saves! God saves! God saves! Is what that means. They were, they, they were praising Jesus. And now, in their minds, Jesus has severely let them down. Jesus is dying. Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. So they hate him. They wanted government overthrow. They wanted their selfish agenda to be fulfilled. That was in Matthew 21, by the way. 
verses 9 to 15, they are now disgusted with Jesus. What's positive about that? Well, again, if you took the time to go to Psalm 22, again, you see, this is, this is going to be expected. This is how it's going to unfold. It's amazing. We've seen this throughout Matthew's account. If you're just joining us today, we've been working through Matthew, and we've seen time and time again, this is going to happen according to plan. This is going to happen according to plan, and we're seeing that here even with this mocking. By the way, here's a question for you. What, what did they say at the end of the verse? If you look there in verse 40... Come down from the cross. Here's my question. Do you think they really wanted him to come down? On the surface, we say no, they didn't really want him to come down. But there's even a deeper level. They didn't want him to come down. They didn't want him to come down if they're hostiles against him. Certainly they didn't want him to come down. In light of what Jesus said earlier, remember in Matthew 26 where Jesus said, If I wanted to... I could ask my father and he would bring more angels than you could count and he would have those angels mow everybody down. They didn't really want Jesus to come down if he's opposed to them and they're opposed to him because it would be lights out for them, right? But on a deeper level, a level they weren't aware of, they don't want him to come down, just like you don't want him to come down. Sure, there's a sense of justice in all of us, so we say, come down, get him, right? They deserve it. But there's something that is also in us that says, because we know the whole story, we don't want him to come down. Because if he comes down, then he doesn't die a sacrificial death. There is no atonement. There is no reconciliation between us and God. There, there, there is no Christianity. None of it makes any sense. We don't want him to come down. And in an unknown way, they, wouldn't want it if, they would not have wanted him to come down either. In fact, back in that text where Jesus says he could call 12 legions of angels, it goes on to say in, in Matthew twenty six fifty four, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? We need Jesus on that cross. And so did they. A fourth to humiliate Jesus in connection with his crucifixion is the religious establishment. And if you're again new to the Bible, this might be news to you, but it's not news to those of you who've been studying Matthew. Those who oppose Jesus more than anybody else have been the religious leaders. And they're going to oppose Him here in a, in a striking way. They are spiritual thugs. They are spiritual creeps. I'll use a word that my dad used to use for people he didn't respect very much. They were pukes. Anybody else's dad ever used that word? They're a bunch of spiritual pukes is what they are. Let's coin the term and make it a new 21st century cool hip term to use for religious leaders who don't love Jesus. Well, that's what they are. You'll see. Let's go ahead and read what they say. Oh, you know what? Let me interrupt you. Before we read verse 41, what's extraordinary here in showing us their badness, their pukiness, is the fact that they're there that they're going to actually come out to where people are being crucified and get their robes soiled 
to get their priestly vestments dirty or whatever it is, to get all the holy hardware, you know, dirty or whatever it is. This was not normal. Sure, they, they, they would want someone to be crucified. They wouldn't show up. It's extraordinary. I know it is because Luke 23, 35 says, and even the rulers were sneering at him as if to say, even the rulers are there. The religious leaders are there. This is unheard of. It just shows how they hate Jesus. Verse 41. Thanks for letting me interrupt you. In the same way, the chief priests also, they're there, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying... I gotta interrupt you again. Don't miss the fact they're not saying it to Jesus on the cross. They see Jesus as far too below them on a cross to be worthy to talk to him. He's on the cross, so what are they gonna do to insult him? They're gonna talk about him in front of him. Verse 42. He saved others! Objectively true. They're saying it mockingly here, no doubt. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Again, true, but in a mocking sense here. Let him, let, let him now come down from the cross and, and we will believe in him. Would they? They wouldn't. If Jesus came down from the cross, if they had the opportunity, they would put him right back up there. Because by now, Jesus for multiple years has been doing extraordinary things, miraculous things. Oh, you know, like raising the dead. Oh, you know, the the major things they've seen, they've been exposed to, they've seen him in person. He's not some kind of fraud. And they're crucifying him. For him to come down from the cross would mean nothing to them. But they're doing just what people who try to, to give false excuses against Christianity do. If I only saw a miracle, I'd believe it. (laughs) it's not the case if if it were the case these guys would be believing a long time ago verse 43 says he trusts in God let God rescue him now if he delights in him for he said I am the son of God (laughs) they sound like pagans don't they that's kind of interesting the religious leaders are now talking like the absolute pagans I mean in effect they're like making fun of God now They are perverts in the worst sense of the term. What's the positive? Psalm 22, again. There's something about this that is according to the script. And therefore, we as Christians, as much as we hate it and as much as we despise these individuals for what they've done, there's something in us at the same time we feel the other emotion and that is, I'm so glad that this is happening according to God's perfect plan of redemption so that I might have hope. Number five and six, and we'll cover these quickly. A fifth to humiliate Jesus in connection with his crucifixion would be what I'll call the dregs of society. The criminals, we've already seen them. In verse 44, the robbers who'd been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Can you believe it? I mean, that just shows the sinfulness of the human heart. There you've been crucified. You're in your dying state. And what are you doing? You're just chiming right in. You're just showing yourself for who you really are. 
and it's ugly. But even the criminals, isn't it amazing what we've seen so far? Okay, you've got the Roman soldiers, you've got the Roman leader, you've got the general populace, you've got the religious leaders, and now you've even got the criminals involved, and they're all against Jesus. And again, we say, this is horrific. And somehow, God is working so there's going to be some good that comes as a result. We know if we were to take the time to look at Luke's account, one of those criminals says this later, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So whatever happened during that time, during that time frame with, with them all being there on the cross, there's a change of heart. There, there, there's a, a supernatural work in the, one of the men's heart. And if we were to continue to read, he actually tells the other guy, in effect, to shut up. Now, isn't it great, amidst the darkness, that God is going to bring good? Isn't it amazing that not in Pilate or the religious leaders, not in their wildest dreams, were they thinking when, when, when Pilate said, okay, we're going to crucify Jesus with two criminals, not in his wildest dreams was he thinking, so that it might provide a good evangelistic opportunity for Jesus and someone might be converted. It was a total insult, high-handed. Let's put him with the criminals. And one gets converted. <laughs> it's poetic justice. It's good. We like that. And we see God again working good things amidst the turmoil. One of my favorite sermons I probably ever preached, and that sounds weird coming from the preacher, I know, would be one that I called Lessons from a Thief. Because you learn so much if you look all the Gospels together and you see the transformation that happens by the grace of God and what we learn about what God does in people's lives, even from this man. Okay, finally, number six. Number six, to humiliate Jesus. It's not in Matthew, but I have to add it. People like you and people like me. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, you'll see what I mean. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we see that people humiliated Jesus and they were people who were like you and like me. If I can push it a little bit further, I don't want to violate the historical narrative, but by way of application, humiliating Jesus in relationship to His crucifixion, for application, you and me. Because everything points to the fact, everything I know to be true from the Bible points to the fact that if I were there, and apart from being one of the disciples, if I were there hearing Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, it would be addressed to me and it would be addressed to you. It's meant to be all-inclusive for everyone who is there, and everyone who is there would include people who are coming from all different regions. And I love this because it's so easy for us to think somehow these horrible people who did this to Jesus and how bad are they. Acts 2.23 says, This man, referring to Jesus, Peter's talking to this large, large crowd, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We're not talking about that right here this morning. You, 
general populace. You nailed to a cross. You say, wait a minute, the soldiers nailed him to a cross. But by way of application, you bring things to the spiritual heart of the matter. They wanted him there. Which fits the fact that they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. He says, you guys did this to him. Sure, Roman soldiers did it because if you keep reading, it says, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he's not being untrue to, to what really happened. But he's pointing the finger at them. And I'll point the finger at you. We pointed at ourselves. You nailed him to the cross. You wanted him on the cross. You didn't want to come to God on, on his terms. You wanted to come on your terms. And when God comes here to earth and says, here I am, here is the way to eternal life, what happens? The population at large kills him. Now here's the positive side. The positive side is, if you keep reading, Peter goes on to call those people to repentance, which tells us, that, tells us there's an opportunity for repentance. He calls them to believe in Christ, to trust in Him as Savior, the one who would die in their place, the one who would forgive their sins as a result of this horrible thing that they had done to Him. And that's what we call as Christians the gospel, the good news, that while we were bad against God, not for Him, He was for us, according to His perfect plan. And it's gospel news. It's good news. It ends positively. So when you read the gospel accounts, I hope you're trying to read them with an informed mind. You're thinking, this is bad and unjust. You're thinking, this is the key to my hope. And you're thinking, this is the key to Christ's greater exaltation. And so you're, 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 you're despising it and you're loving it all at the same time. What we'll do next time is we'll not look at this physical side of things. We'll move on to where the Father judges the Son for our sins to the degree where the Son cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll look at that next time we're all together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus Christ and for the fact that He did this for us. And Your Word tells us that it was because He loved us, not while we were good or righteous, but while we were sinners, while we were opposed to Him, Christ came and died for the ungodly, it says in Romans 5. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the hope that we have in Christ that all of this makes sense. We're thankful that this happened in history and that we're not placing our our trust in fairy tales. We love Jesus because He loved us first, and we want everything in our life to reflect that. Thank You for doing all of this according to Your plan for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.